think it's an education problem. Like, I don't want to bubble it up into it's a pipeline issue because it's not a pipeline issue. There's a ton of diversity on the planet. I think there is a a gap. There's a skills gap that these companies are looking for this caliber talent. The same thing with the NBA, the same thing with the NFL, the same thing with any professional league or organization. They're looking for this kind of caliber of talent. And if you're not grooming or educating or training certain communities to be able to develop those skills, then you're not going to see them at the end result. And I think that's what it is with tech. There's enough jobs available for people. There's seats, there's budgets. But if you don't have enough people learning the skills and getting the opportunities to grow their careers and evolve, then nobody's going to give them a shot because they're just going to always fall back to well, you're not the right candidate what we're looking for. And it's like, well, nobody's actually setting them up to ever be the right candidate. So I would say, yes, there's a diversity problem in tech, but I think it's a bigger problem with lack of education and lack of skills training. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to Works in Process, the podcast about uncovering creative methodologies from people doing inspiring work. In each episode, whether I'm talking to a designer, an educator, or an entrepreneur, we learn the hows and whys behind what they do. Through experiences and determination, my guests explore the techniques and inspiration that have helped them navigate their creative careers. I'm your host, designer and educator, George Garristegui Jr. Join me as I continue to elevate the creative process by shifting the focus to how we work over what we produce. On today's episode, I want to welcome Fonz Morris. Great design gives Fonz life. Prior to joining the growth team at Netflix, he was the lead designer and growth team at Coursera, the world's leading online platform. And as founder and growth designer, he's led product design at two startups and worked with some of the world's biggest companies. As a leader, Fonz focused on balancing experience with spontaneity and intense creativity with the discipline and methodologies of production. His undergraduate career began at the HBCU Morehouse College and ended with earning his BS in computer science from Georgia State University. With no formal education in design, he's an advocate for the self-taught designer. Additionally, he mentors and designs students through Made in the Future, Cascade SF, California College of the Arts, Kimyo Foundation, Brain Station, and General Assembly's UX Design Bootcamp. Fonz's passion is creating effective and successful experiences that engage, inspire, and attract customers. He was a cohort member at the First Round Capital's founding designer track, and he's currently a cohort member at Floodgate Fund and design advisor for SignalFire. His talent and enthusiasm are well-respected throughout the design industry, and he's been invited to speak at several professional tech audiences, including Afrotech, Rethink HQ, How Design Live, Design Thinking Conference, the Black is Tech Conference, UX Fest, UXDX, designed by us, UC Berkeley, and UC Davis. Hey, Fonz. Wow. So glad to get you on the Works and Process podcast. That's that was a lot, a lot right? Yeah, but hearing you say that made me think I might need to shorten it. Maybe I need a brief and an extended version. But you know, it's always fun to hear somebody go over your bio. But I do think I might need a shorter one. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I know I do have a short and a long just so you can like, you know, for certain instances, but Mm -hmm. man, it's been a minute trying to schedule this convo and I'm lucky that we're able to make this happen. Your tenacity is, is very respected (laughs) and your professionalism as well. It's just really hard when 
you're like, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I work at Netflix, I do a lot of public speaking, mentoring, traveling. I'm from the East, but I live on the West. So I'm just moving around a lot. But when two people want to really make something happen, they'll keep trying. And here we are. Yeah. Thank you very much, man. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. And so, you know, we're going to talk a bit a little bit later about what it means to be a growth designer. But before we do that, I want to dive in and, and clear your mind. I start every episode with a fun icebreaker. Are you ready? Go for it. Coffee or tea? Tea. Toast or a bagel? Toast. Air Max or Air Jordans? <laughs> what kind of question is that? I'm looking at a pair of Air Jordan 3s right now. Oh, t- <laughs> but that's not an answer, you. though. <laughs> Jordan. Okay. The Gotta black, the, the black Jordan. elephant, elephant print in in black. Got to do the threes. Yep, the eighty eight dunk contest, designing or mentoring. Now in my career, I would say mentoring. East coast or west coast. Now where I am in my life, I would say west coast. Oh man, I thought you were gonna bring it back home. <laughs> no, well, don't get me wrong. I love the east coast, but what the west coast offers for me right now is more up my lane. But I love the East Coast. I was just there a couple of weeks ago. But for quality of life, weather, opportunity, I just got to give it to the left coast. <laughs> cool. And so some quick word associations. What's the first thing you hear of when you think of these words, right? Creativity. Design. Determination. Black people. Business. Getting money. Failure. Necessary. Community backbone of society education one of the most powerful things we have on this planet mistakes also necessary skills oh sorry skills necessary for growth evolving history you don't know where you're going if you don't know where you came from opportunity lacking for certain communities accessibility one of the most important things that a designer or anybody living on planet earth should be worried about future the rapper first because he's so popular actually he <laughs> changed his name to cash he changed his name to cash so i don't know if i can say future future very bright i would say and of course last but not least process necessary but shouldn't be constraining awesome right i just want to always do that because it's a fun way to start each episode and kind of get you thinking about things that maybe you don't normally think about when you're starting a podcast. Oh yeah. No, that's cool. I love iceberg. Cause I always try to come up with different fun ones as well, just to kind of, like you said, lighten the mood before things take off. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we heard a lot, like you said in your bio about, you know, kind of what you've been up to and what you've done. Right. But mm-hmm. now I want to give our listeners a glimpse into how you were introduced into art and design. So mm-hmm. where'd you grow up and were you creative as a kid? So that's interesting you asked that. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and I was creative as a kid. I went to a high school actually called Art and Design, and I'm a self-taught creative. I wanted to have the fine art skills of being an illustrator or being a painter, but I want to say I wasn't naturally given that talent, and I didn't nurture that talent enough, but I did have a very strong attraction to architecture by growing up in New York City as well as a very strong attraction to fashion because I grew up in New York City. So, and then going to school in New York City, a lot of our 
early trips were to places like the World Trade Center and to the MoMA and to the Brooklyn Natural Museum. So I was being exposed to design culturally as a child and didn't even really, really know it. But it did have a lot to do with where I am now, because when I was in the eighth grade, I decided that I wanted to try to get into this art high school and I had to create a portfolio and I didn't know what a portfolio was. So <laughs> I just went to the library and looked up what I thought portfolios were. I used this thing that we don't use anymore called encyclopedias to try to figure out what should I put in a portfolio? And then I just started to be creative and I just created all kind of drawings. I created isometric drawings and cityscapes and floor plans and just whatever I could think of that could show my artistic abilities. And mm -hmm. then I had to do an interview to get into the high school. And once I got accepted, I would say that's where my true design journey started was when I started high school. Mm -hmm. And similarly, and you went to art and design, I went to LaGuardia, which is, you uh -huh. know, that sort of you're on the east side of Manhattan. I'm on the west side of Manhattan, literally almost across the park, right, from each other. And always man, I heard big, LaGuardia big is, <laughs> man, I heard LaGuardia is really hard to get into now. Like, really, really hard to get into. Yeah, because I think they also changed the metric because now it's yeah. it's no longer just, are you creative? They're now adding, mm -hmm. are you smart? Great. Are you this, right? So it's oh, uh, so they're not just adding your yeah. talents when before it was mainly talent is, oh, what's your GPA? It was just talent. Yeah, la but when we went, yeah. it was just talent. It was like, yo, are you good? Just talent. Yeah, so I think that's where it's yeah. making it harder because some creative kids don't do well in English or don't do well in math, right. but they can, right. you know, they can sing, they could dance, they could draw, they could play music. Right. Like, and that's what, it, when I went, that's what it was all about, you know? And now it's like, cool. Can you do that? But can you also rock a 4.0? And you're like, well, that's, yeah, that's not necessarily the same thing. Yeah. I forgot that you're from NY. So you can already see how the, the inequalities in the education system in New York to me are so prevalent when you think of, it's so hard to get into the better schools, but if it's such a populated area, then what happens to all the students that don't get into the specialized high schools? Are the other schools good enough to be able to give these students the same education mm -hmm. or is only the 1% of all the kids in New York City graduating with a quality education? So when you think of putting things in place like that to where now it's not just if you're creative, it's also how well you do on standardized tests. I just don't think that's inclusive. No, definitely not. And that's why I think if, if it was like that before, I would have never got in. <laughs> you know? Man, I honestly think I got in on grit. I think my interviewer saw that I just, that I had the passion, that I had the determination, I had the the will, the want to, and the potential. That's what I've heard a lot fortunate enough in my life is, people think I have potential. Mm -hmm. And when somebody thinks you have potential, then they'll invest in you. Mm -hmm. And that's why we need to start saying more things like that to our community, the design community, the black and brown community, the global community of just, hey, you have potential and I'm going to give you a shot. Yeah, I mean, that's so true. But let me continue this little bit before we dig into some of those heavy hitting questions you're automatically bringing to the table. Who, if any, was your biggest supporter as of your creative career? That's a good question because like I would say it evolves over time. 
when I was younger, I would definitely say my dad, my mom passed away when I was young. So I was raised by a single dad and he did the best he could. And he made sure that I went to school every day. I graduated from school. I have a roof over my head. I had food in my stomach. So I would say in my earlier years, it was my dad. I would say in the middle stages of my life, it was my peers because we were all learning this new multimedia world together. And we all put in seven days a week, 80 hour weeks together. And we grinded together and we supported each other and we lifted each other and we carried each other through. So I would say my friends during that phase. And then for the later part, I would say my wife, because she's just my homie. She's right there beside me. She was there when I was just getting things off the ground. And now that we're farther on, she's still here. So I would say it's bounced between family, friends, and then my wife. Mm -hmm. Seems like the different stages, right? Give us different types Mm -hmm. of support that we need. Mm -hmm. Because you evolve and you grow. So the support I needed when I was just getting started, I still need some of that support now, but I also need a different level of support that I didn't need then. So I would say for most people, it's probably going to change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. True. Over time, evolve. True. And so, you know, you you mentioned that as, you know, when you got into art and design, it was kind of that idea of first betting on yourself of like being a creative, right? But what was your first creative job and how did you stumble into it? I'm trying to think, so I'm being honest. <laughs> When you say job, do you say like meaning as a, as I got paid for it or just does I'm, I mean, I, I think it's like any idea. Job. Like, I mean, you know, I say, what's your first creative job? Do uh, you think it means you got paid for that job? Do you mean it was the first time you realized yes. like, so that's, then that's your answer. Job to me would mean money. Mm-hmm. If it's not money, then I don't know if it's a job. It mm-hmm. could be internship or something like that. So I would say job, I would say my first creative job was my own business that I started. It was my own creative agency. I started as soon as I graduated college and I tried to get people to give me money to pay for. I mean, I tried to get people to pay me for logo design and one page website design or music video. I was very, very focused on multimedia. So I would say my own creative agency was my first true creative job. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Cool. Cool. So when was the first time you considered yourself a creative? Back when I did that portfolio and I got into art and design. So I felt creative for a long time, way, way longer before then when I got paid. It was more of creativity and being a creative to me is more of a lifestyle. And I would say because I was going to an art high school, that was the the lifestyle I lived. I had the pencils, I had the pens, I had the the tools, I had the two hours of art every day. So I would say back then is when I started being a creative. I started making money from it once I got out of college. Good delineation. I want to give more context to how I, I came across you, right? And I think I was first introduced to you by one of the guests I had before, Amari Sousa, and he was doing the State of Black Design at Texas State University, and I think in 2021, right? And He's a good dude. Yeah, that very, program has grown to, I mean, my goodness, from even when I was involved till now. Yeah. This year's was huge. It was so huge. So shout out to Omari for sure. Yeah, Shout definitely. out to him. And, you know, and and listening to you and the come up and the and the panel that you were on, I believe, right? It was just good to hear, like, as, as we're going through right now, another New York City kid 
doing big things. And I was like, all right, I'm mm-hmm. going to, I'm going to hit you up on LinkedIn just to kind of be like, yo, I saw you, you know, I see what you're doing and things like that. I just want to connect. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when we think about what you do and kind of like where your trajectory is at now, but like you said, where we started, I want to ask you, like, the terminology and lexicon with design can be very confusing when you're talking about very mm-hmm. specific areas of design. So can we just mm-hmm. set the stage for a moment, right? Like, can we explain what product design is versus UX, UI design? Are they the same? Sure. That's a question that comes up a lot. And let me start off by saying they're all very intertwined, and I don't think there is one correct answer. I think depending on how what your experience with design has been will help dictate the answer that you give. So I'll explain what I think it is. I think UX is your full experience with the product of some sort from you learning about it all the way through you interacting with it, engaging it and not using it anymore or being a repeat user or something like that. Your whole time using something, your whole interaction with a product. I would say that's what UX is, user experience. I would say UI is the actual interface that you're interacting with for that product. For a laptop, it's the keyboard. For your iPhone, it's your screen. For your refrigerator, it's the handle, or maybe you have a screen on your refrigerator, or it's your remote. So it's the actual interaction with the product, whatever you're using, the buttons you're pushing, the screens you're seeing, that's UI. And I would say product design is how you actually created that whole experience, which is, okay, what problem needs to be solved? That's the step one. And from then you would go into, okay, well, let's really figure out whose problem this is. Should we solve it? How do we solve it? Do we want to do some research on things? Also, the the whole process of getting from ideation to execution and then support afterwards, I would say is product design. Mm-hmm. So UX and UI, I would say go under product design if product design is going to be the umbrella. Okay, term. cool, cool. I mean, I think that that is a, a the way I would think about it too, right? And mm-hmm. I love that you also kind of dictated that user interaction is also with the physical space, right? Like mm-hmm. keyboards, mm-hmm. the fridge, right? The handle is a u- Your user. Your car. Yeah. We're so used to hearing these four letters together and it's like, oh, it's digital. And we're like, no, mm-hmm. you, you deal with it every day. It's an experience. You know, it's an interaction. Your iPhone. Just think of your iPhone. It's still hardware. Like mm-hmm. it's hardware first. Mm-hmm. And then it's software on the hardware. So that's why when people ask that, I try to take a second to make sure that I'm being as inclusive as possible. I think that's the magic word for 2023 and beyond. It's inclusion because it's not just inclusion from a DEI perspective. It's an inclusion from a philosophy of when you're saying UI, why does it only have to be software? Mm -hmm. It's hardware as well. Thinking about the full scope, gamut, range, reach of things, I think is smart. Mm-hmm. when you're giving a definition of something. Yeah, right. Even when you're talking about it, right? And when, like you said, when you think of product design as almost like the umbrella term, right? I want to ask you, mm-hmm. when you're thinking of new projects or or starting something new, what comes first? The process, the research, or the solution? The and- solution doesn't come until the end because the solution can constantly change. So you may have a slight idea of how you of how you may solve this, but the final solution is definitely some time out. 
So the research is almost step two, but I would say step one to me is actually defining that there is a problem that needs to be solved. I think a lot of people jump into the solution and then when you start grilling them on a problem, it's like, mm-hmm, is that really a problem or couldn't you have just done this to solve that? So I like to step one to really be immersed in it and truly understand what the problem is because that immediately goes into, well, you need to have empathy for somebody if you're going to be trying to solve somebody's problem, which then goes into, well, you got to know who to have empathy for. And that's where research, as well as understanding your target market that this problem is for. So it's like some quick rapid fire steps that you should do if you want to get on the right track. And after you go through those steps and you work on some things, I think then you'll start to get a a inclination of what the solution could be, but the solution should definitely not be first. It's just too early. Things change. You haven't learned enough about the problem or the space to be jumping out there saying you have a solution that early. <laughs> That's true. I mean, it's one of the things that, that that I focus on when I teach my classes is, you know, they all kind of want to be like, cool, I want to do this. And I'm like, you have no reasoning for this yet, right? Yep. Like, doesn't mean you're wrong. But Ooh. right now, you don't have any real basis to make these claims. Whose problem are you solving? That's a really easy, you know whose problem Netflix is solving? People who like to stream content and people who like entertainment. And now people want to watch entertainment in their home. So what is the problem that Netflix is solving? They're bringing the ability to consume entertainment to whatever form of hardware you want to use, whether you want to use a TV, you want to use a laptop, you want to use a cell phone, you want to use a PlayStation 5, whatever you want to use is fine. We know you want to watch content and we're going to deliver it to you. That's Mm -hmm. our, that's the problem we're solving for users. Now that breaks into a whole bunch of other things, but there's nothing greater than that. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Are there specific methodologies that you use when creating? Does it change based on problem? Or is it always this kind of series of things that you do similarly? It changes because you like to have structure, but you need to be flexible when you're working at a fast moving company like Netflix. So process is good. I don't think it should be limiting, but process is good. But certain projects are way bigger than others where I'm on a project now that's two years plus. So that obviously is going to be a different process than another project that I worked on as soon as I started the company that was only two months. So it depends on the project you're working on, but you should still have some form of a process, some form of a strategy framework, but leave a lot of room for flexibility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Flexibility, I think, is key, right? It, it's allowing Super. you to, to make agile decisions and not be mm-hmm. so set in stone. Mm-hmm. Design is organic. Things change. You get more information. You learn more, whether it's good or bad. And are you going to utilize that feedback that you have? Or are you going to ignore it? We don't ignore any feedback we get. So we might be at the 25th hour of something. And if we know that this feedback is going to make this product better and it's going to solve the problem for our user more efficiently, then we're going to think about implementing that. We don't want to, but customers first. So when you're looking at like customer first or the possibilities of, you know, this umbrella term product design, right? With a field that's moving and evolving so quickly and continuing to grow, what are the possibility career paths you see within 
product design? And is there something new that maybe me as an educator or, or the design community need to be more aware of what kind of is shifting into? Product management is super important. Like I would say product management and design ops. Those are two terms that people don't, maybe they know them, maybe they don't, maybe they think they can go into design, maybe they don't, maybe they think they go into tech. People probably get product and project management confused, but I would say everybody needs product management skills. I was just on a call yesterday with the general counsel for Scale Venture Partners, and he said, man, to be honest with you, venture capital is a lot of product management as well. It's just one of those, I don't want to say industry, but it's one of those things that is more horizontal than just vertical. It mm-hmm. spreads across everything. Everything needs a product manager, no matter what. Somebody needs to be able to help figure out how do you execute this? How do you get this done? Who are the stakeholders? What's success look like? What are the metrics? And that's always growing. As we grow into a more product-focused culture, then you're going to need people to manage all these products. Mm-hmm. So I would say product management. And then I would say design ops because design is finally almost sitting at the table with engineering and data science and these other industries. And it's getting more and more complex. So designers and design orgs need more support. Mm-hmm. And design ops is, in my mind, equivalent to a TPM. And for the people that's listening, that's like a technical project manager. Mm-hmm. And that's the person who works in between engineering and design to help get things from engineering to design to help answer questions. They're kind of that liaison, and but they're coming from the engineering side. So design ops is almost their peer coming from the design side, and they help us manage relationships with engineering, set timelines, workflows, efficiencies, things like that. So I would say from somebody who is knee deep in the space, product management and design ops are two really budding industries, as well as data science. You got to throw data science in there because if everything is about data, you got to learn how to use the data and Mm -hmm. you got to learn how to extrapolate it and find patterns and use it to make better decisions. So design is growing a lot more than just what people think of it being visual and interaction. Like I just said, it's there's a product management layer, there's a design ops layer, there's a data layer, which leads into where I am, which is growth, because I'm focused on the results. I'm focused on metrics. I'm focused on revenue or conversion, not just what product I produce, but what impact did that product actually have? on the business. Mm-hmm. So that's, I guess, I mean, look, you ran in right into my next question, right? Like, what is this transition mm-hmm. of a product designer, right, with all these overarching skills to this term growth? You're a growth designer at Coursera and now at Netflix. Like that mm-hmm. to me, when I read your bio, also doing a lot more research, right? That is an interesting term that obviously maybe it's tied to business, right? Growth mm-hmm. of business, but it could mm-hmm. be multi-layered things. Can you explain what a growth designer is. Yeah, like it's definitely layered. What I was focused on at Coursera versus Netflix, there was some similarities, but there was some difference, but they were, as you stated, focused on the growth of something. When I was at Coursera, we wanted to grow the revenue, of course, but how do we grow the revenue? That was from making sure that we were 
converting the visitors to our homepage. But what does converting the visitors to our homepage mean? We needed you to sign up for a Coursera account. But not only did we need you to sign up for a Coursera account, we needed to get you to our course subpages where you could actually enroll in a course or enroll in a degree program. So until you enrolled in one of those programs, we've done our job, but not all the way efficiently. Right. So that was what the flow of what we wanted somebody to do who visited Coursera. When you think about Netflix, it's a different ball game because people know the company. So we already have 200 million plus subscribers, but you know, we have a hundred million people sharing their password. So that's a lot of money that the company's losing that we want to get back. So how do we get that back? What kind of initiatives do we need to put in place? What kind of products do we need to create? What kind of things do we need to change to be able to capitalize off those sharing households? And you also think of a lot of Netflix subscribers leave and come back. How do we make your experience super smooth? So when you come back, maybe it's one click or how do we improve the platform so you never leave? So it's just a different layer of problems. I think a growth designer worries about versus just a general product designer. I think a product designer evolves and matures into a growth designer because you start to care more about what impact your product has, like I said earlier. So when you first get started, you might just be cool on creating something and that's fine because we're all creators. But after a while, you're going to want to see where this is going. Why did I create this? Who's using this? What impact did this really have? And that's when you start to get not out of design, but you start to dabble in the business space as well, because you need to understand the business goals and KPIs and what metrics are important to the business and what are the goals of the business, where's the business trying to go over the next year, over the next five years. And now you as the growth designer, you need to be aligned with those initiatives and that vision so you can help achieve them. You know, as you're talking about what it is to transition and this idea of a growth designer is kind of the elevation of product, right? And you like, once again, you know, talking into right at what I'm going to be asking next, right? Does it so, you know, we're in the, the Netflix and the area of Netflix and chill, right? And you're talking about this initiative to kind of get people stop, you know, sharing their passwords, right? And it seems like it's unfortunately so deep rooted in the Netflix experience that, you know, people share people's passwords, right? But what you're trying to do is change people's habits. Like, how are you and Netflix thinking about that to get people to be more, mindful of what, like you said, if 200 million people are there and only 50% of them are actually paying for it and everything else is shared, you're losing a boatload of money. How are you getting people to start to think about this differently? We have to get users to value their Netflix account. And the same way you don't share your Amazon password or you don't share your Gmail password, there's value in those passwords. Those are yours. That's what we're going to do with Netflix, where we want you to feel as if this is your account, this algorithm and has been personalized for you. This is your content. You sure you really want to share this as well as increasing the overall value, making sure our features are exciting and appealing to where overall people are still excited to want to pay for Netflix. And they think that it's valuable enough to have their own account and putting different type of communications in place to let people know that when they are sharing, hey, there's other ways for you to be able to enjoy Netflix without sharing. That's why we're introducing new plans to be able to not just 
tell people to stop and cut everything off, but just more introduce solutions. Once again, like I said, problems need solutions, introducing solutions that understand where the users are coming from. We understand that this is a habit, but we also are a business. And if our users want us to continue to put out these blockbuster, amazing pieces of content, we have to pay for that. And that money comes from subscriptions. So it's explaining with transparency to users what's going on, but being very empathetic and putting different mechanisms in place to make sure that everybody can still enjoy the platform. And so how different is that than like, you know, if I have multiple profiles on my account, right? For my wife, you know, things like that. How different is that profiles from this new initiative to like everybody being paying for their own access? Each plan gets a certain amount of profiles, right? That won't be affected. It's more of Netflix is for a single household. So when you share outside of your household, that's where the issue comes into play. When you're at home with your wife and your kids, that's fine. You can share as and watch on concurrent devices as many as your plan offers. Our thing is more when your kids are older and they've moved out of the house or you have a vacation house in another city or you have multiple people that don't live in New York using your account. Like we see, hey, George, you're in New York, but you're also logged in in Miami. You're logged in in Houston. You're logged in in Los Angeles. You as George, you can't be logged in all those places at the same time and watch. So we're just going to ask you, George, where's your primary location at? You'll say New York. And then everybody that's in New York can watch with no problem. I mean, I, I know it's a it's a huge issue. And I, I wonder, is this an ethical, cultural, experiential, or monetary decision? I mean, it's a business. So because it's a business, businesses have to make money. I wouldn't say ethical because we're not judging anybody for sharing and we're not saying anybody's wrong or anything like that. We're just enforcing an existing policy that we were previously not enforcing. In our terms and conditions, it still says the same thing. Netflix is for a single household. I just think over time, people came up with their own definition for it, and we understand that. But now it's time to get to level set those expectations of the platform. And But that's why we're trying to make sure that we put different mechanisms in place to not necessarily affect your experience with the platform. And yeah, I mean, it's always been, right, this idea of, you know, household driven. And obviously, if it's once it's out of the household, it's a whole different ballgame. Everybody should have their own access, which mm -hmm. is interesting. I think it's just a, 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 this, like you said, there's problems and there's things that need to be solved. And something that is so inherently like just in the world, people sharing passwords and you're right. like, and you're like, right. oh, no, this, this is an issue. And, you know, if we don't solve this, like you said, we can't produce these things that you're now accustomed to seeing from our company. Right. I mean, this is big money that Netflix stands to earn by curbing password sharing. And that money is going to be used to reinvest into the platform and continue to grow and make the company amazing and, and to continue to allow it to be the number one streaming platform. So we've been working on this for years. This isn't just a, oh, we decided two months ago, nothing moves at Netflix that fast, as well as it's a massive company with a lot of cross-functional partners and different things you have to worry about and regulations. And 
it takes a lot to really roll out something as big as this, but we've put a lot of user research into it. We've spoken to a ton of users. We're confident about the decision and we're confident about the solutions that we've also put in place to help make sure that people can still use the platform the way they're used to. Mm -hmm. So just kind of reemphasizing kind of what Netflix is really about instead of adding a whole new kink. Right. It's just about, hey, this is the best content that you're going to get. Everybody knows that Netflix has the best content and we want you to value your access to that content. And that's through valuing your account. And it's also through education, educating our customers on the same question that you said, what are profiles versus accounts and things of that nature. People have a lot of questions and that's something else that we're very, very adamant about is making sure that we give the right information to people so we can educate them on what's going on as opposed to just either them having to assume or be left in the dark or come to their own solutions based off of searching the web and stuff like that. It just makes good sense for us as Netflix to make sure that we're putting out the right information for our customers to learn the best way to use the platform. So, you know, you've been in the, in the game for a minute, right? You wrote something in your bio that I thought was really interesting. And what metric do you think you use to determine what's effective and successful? Did I solve the problem? There's no one specific metric. It's did George spend more money? Did George leave the platform? Did George downgrade his plan to something else? Did George refer somebody else to sign up? So it depends. It's very unique. But for Netflix, it's all of those. It's are you a happy customer where you keep paying every month? Are you a disgruntled customer where you cancel? Did you pause? Did you share? So all of those different things are the different metrics that you can look at to see, okay, are our customers happy? Some people look at stock price. Some people look at revenue. Like, I think that's up to the individual. I'm a mixture of all of them because I think all of them matter for the success of the business. And it seems like, you know, like you said, all of these things are, are larger systems level thinking that designers now have access to, right? The way we think, the, the, the creative ways we can solve problems don't need to be strictly visual. They're not. I'm wondering with all of this stuff out there, what kind of problems do you think product designers and creatives should be tackling more in the future? Making sure that customers are happy. I'm going to keep beating that into the wall. Making sure you're truly solving their problem. There's one amazing GIF. Well, it's not a GIF. It's an image that they show. And it's of a cat with one of those scratching pads. And it has all these random different poles and things all over it. And it's like what you think the customer wants. And the next image is just a cat inside of a box. And it's like what the customer actually wants. You know what I mean? The cat just wants to sit in the box and that's fine. We thought the cat wanted all this other stuff and it doesn't. Like, I think you end up being kind of detached from your customer sometimes because you're so focused on revenue or you're so focused on what you think the customer wants. You lose that sight of what does the customer really want. So I think forever product designers should do more user research so you can be more aligned with your customers and have a better understanding of where they are and what they want and problems they have so you can solve those as opposed to just assuming and guessing the user research needs to 100x. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to what you're talking about before, right? Like, 
you know, understanding empathy and what people really need versus just giving them this tool, this thing, and they're never going to use it. Cause like you said, the cat just wants a box. Right. It's like, how you solving my problems? If you never spoke to me, you don't mm -hmm. know what my problems are. You didn't speak to me. And if you spoke to me, I could have told you and I probably surprised you. That's why I love that Netflix has such a amazing customer insight UX research department because we're in so many qualitative and quantitative qualls and research sessions. We're always learning about what customers think about Netflix. And when you're in 190 different countries and you have 200 million plus people, those people are all different individuals. You don't want to assume for anybody. You want to hear from them and let them tell you what's up. And I think that's why the, the company has been very successful over the last 25 years of just making sure we stick to what we know how to do, do it well, and improve on that. And that's what we do. And we know what to improve by always reaching out to our customers and trying to figure out what's important to them. Where might they be struggling? How can we improve things or optimize things like that? We're a very customer focused company, which I don't know if a lot of people know that. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And, you know, obviously, like you said, 25 years, right? You're a tech company. Mm -hmm. you're, you're on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. Is there a diversity problem in tech or is it an access to tech problem? I think it's an education problem. Like, I don't want to bubble it up into it's a pipeline issue because it's not a pipeline issue. There's a ton of diversity on the planet, I think there is a, a gap. There's a skills gap that these companies are looking for this caliber talent. The same thing with the NBA, the same thing with the NFL, the same thing with any professional league or organization. They're looking for this kind of caliber of talent. And if you're not grooming or educating or training certain communities to be able to develop those skills, then you're not going to see them at the end result. And I think that's what it is with, with tech. There's enough jobs available for people. There's, there's seats, there's budgets, but if you don't have enough people learning the skills and getting the opportunities to grow their careers and evolve, then nobody's going to give them a shot because they're just going to always fall back to well, you're not the right candidate, what we're looking for. And it's like, well, nobody's actually setting them up to ever be the right candidate. So I would say, yes, there's a diversity problem in tech, but I think it's a bigger problem with lack of education and lack of skills training. Is it because the industry is not coming backwards and letting us know what they need? Or is it because I could be training somebody for the skills that you don't need? Right. So mm -hmm. if I don't know the skills you mm -hmm. need, though, how am I going to train mm -hmm. them to be on your team or be part of your your company if we don't know mm -hmm. what you're looking for? Because it evolves so rapidly. Right. <laughs> you know. Right. And so I'm wondering, is it a, is it an industry problem where like we're just not aligned? Right. Because we don't know what you're looking for. And if it is, should it be something that individuals put on themselves? Right. You're a mentor. Yep. Right. Like yep. you're mentoring a bunch of people. Is it something that that is the job of Fonz to do the, the is. work or yep. is it or, or is it or is it the companies, the tech industry being like, hey, mm -hmm. we need to make sure what we're looking for. We're letting them know what's out there. I would say more of the latter than the former. I'm not going to put any of that on a company. A company's job is it's Netflix's job to stream content. That's it. Right. When you go deeper than that, that's very subjective. 
I think it's on the end. I tell everybody that I mentor, if you want to know what's going on, then you need to be doing the research. When was the last time you looked at any of these jobs that you claim you want to get and went through their requirements line by line and saw what they're asking for versus what you have. That's work that you have to do on your own. I don't think anybody should have to do that work for you. And that's why as a mentor, that's the type of feedback I give people like, okay, so where do you want to work? And why do you want to work there? And what problems do you want to solve? And what industries are you interested in? I like to get people to do a lot of fundamental question and assessment so that they can have a better understanding of where they are. And then now they they can have a better path into what they want to do. And like what I mean by all of that is if somebody's really interested in UX research, then why am I teaching them to be the best Figma designer possible? I'm not saying don't learn Figma, but why are you spending all your time in Figma if you want to be a UX researcher? That's because somebody probably told you or you came to your own conclusion that a designer's skills are heavy visual design and maybe that's it. If somebody would have sat down with you, helped you understand that you're looking to do more UX research, then maybe they would tell you, sure, you can learn Figma, but you need to learn these other things as well. But if you can't tell me that you want to do UX research or nobody's ever told you that there's a such position as UX research, then you're going to have a lot of people stuck in step zero trying to get to step one. And I think they that's where the mentors are really powerful on helping people get from step zero to step one because of the experience that they have and then being able to be a leader and help that person either create a path, see some new opportunities, maybe set up a new experience for them or something of that nature. So I would say the companies tell you what they want by what they're hiring for in their job description. And I think the designers and the mentors and the teachers and society need to do a better job of knowing how to use that information. All right. That's very smart, right? Like using the, the information that they disseminate out there and, you know, in their job descriptions and go, cool. Let's put it on you to do the research and look at what it's telling you. But I mean, they're telling you, bro, they're literally telling you what they're looking for. And now you can go to that job listing and say, okay, Apple's hiring for 650 designers. Let me look and see which of these designers stand out to me of something I would want to do. And now let's say I find five jobs. I need to go through each one of those jobs and see what they're offering, see where I stand in relation to those jobs. And if I think I have a good understanding of those skills and I should apply. It should be that simple. But I think we need to understand that there's a lot of work that we need to do. We need to turn our own self into a product, almost honestly, until you get to where you want to be so that you're putting that same amount of time. You're putting in that ideation for yourself. You're putting in that user research. You're putting in wireframes. You're putting in prototypes. Treat yourself like a product and you'll get a lot farther. Nice. I think that's a great way to think of yourself as a product and kind of use that experience to build what you're into and do your own research, right? On what you want to yeah. do, where you want to go. Because I think, you know, we just hear big name companies and like, I want to work for Netflix. I'm like, oh, but I don't know what jobs they have, right? So how are you going to know where you fit? Go to the job board. When was the last time anybody told you, hey, George, I just came back from this job board and I saw all of these different requirements. Can you help me figure out where my skills are in line with that? I'm not knocking them for not doing that. I'm saying more. They need to be taught that those are the type of 
tactics that they can use to have a more focused skills building session or learning or a better understanding of where they want to go as opposed to just pulling all of the exciting things that the buzzwords that sound cool, like UX, UI, Figma, and responsive and web and all that type of stuff and go a little deeper and really see where you're passionate about, what industries you're excited in, where are you going to work that is going to fill your cup, as some people would say, as opposed to just having a job that's just going to pay you every two weeks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the biggest things you, you said is also the idea of the mentorship being that like translator, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, you have the experience, you understand what maybe some of these terminologies mean, where the emerging creative is still like un- not clear of how they fit, right? And the mentor's job is to help piece those things together. So mm-hmm. they go, oh, duh, I've been doing that, but I didn't know it was called this. Mm-hmm. I didn't know it was the way you did it is different than the way Apple does it or the way that, you know, XYZ does it, you know, but it all may be the same thing. And we understand the terminology. And sometimes it's just a, a translation issue. Like, I think mentoring is super important, man. I support it 1000%. They're like a coach. I just got two new mentors for this venture capital program I'm in. And both of the first sessions were just mind blowing. And it made me remember how people feel so good when they leave mentoring sessions with me because I'm enlightening them. I'm inspiring them. I'm supporting them. It feels good. I got the exact same thing I give out from my mentors this week. And I already feel like it's life changing. And we just started. (laughs) Well, that's great. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it it is a two way street. You know, I think sometimes, you know, we think when we're giving back, it's just, you know, to, to that. But I think sometimes it's, it's really invigorating to understand that like there's people and, and, and things that we're able to share with that to help bridge the gap and have that ability to say, okay, cool, I'm gonna bring you along with me or I'm gonna learn from you, you know, because you're maybe so much more up on tech than I am about this new mm-hmm. thing that's going on. And I'm like, yeah, I can't keep up, right? And so, you know, somebody else, my mentee, may be the one, you know, putting me on <laughs> to stuff. Yeah, no, I mean, that's mandatory. I think every industry does it, I think all layers of society do it. That's why you need to have a strong network so that people can, the game is to be sold, not told. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Unfortunately. So you got to get into these markets and to these pockets and meet these people that they have this knowledge that they are willing to share, but not if you don't ask them for it. So along with visiting these websites and looking at what the industry is asking for, you need to be growing your network and trying to meet people that can just sprinkle you with a little bit of game if you add all of the different sprinkles from everywhere it starts to add up to be honest with you but you got to be out there i was in the city last night at an event after a completely full day of work i drove an hour to san francisco in the rain because i wanted to go to this event that i knew i would be able to network in i think nine out of ten people would have skipped it but not me because that's not my style and i know what can happen from being in those rooms. And I take that access very serious. And I'm glad that I went. I got to meet two people that I've been trying to get on the calendar for a minute. So that's what I mean to to back this all in. Yes, it's up to you, George. It's up to me to support and teach and help and mentor. But it's also up to the individual to put a lot of time and effort and energy into themselves to be successful. And that's why I said, treat yourself like a product. Nice, nice. On a personal level, What's something that you would like to explore more creative-wise? 
AI. I think AI is super cool right now. I've been dabbling in it. I want to learn more about it and see, are there ways that I can use it to either create a business or help some people out? It's a powerful tool. Doesn't make sense to be anti-AI or anything like that. I don't think they're coming for my job or nothing like that. I think it's a new technology that you should learn how to maximize. So I'm all about AI. I was using MidJourney and ChatGPT right before we got on this call. So I'm always going to stay on top of all of the current trends and technology. I'm never going to fall behind on that. So I would say machine learning and artificial intelligence. That stuff is super, super cool. It's very, very powerful. And when you really understand what's going on, you can do amazing things with it. Okay. All right. Noted. Noted. On a business mm -hmm. level, what shifts are you seeing in the industry? With the growth of Web3, I think people want more control and ownership over the content that they create, and they want to learn how to monetize. I think people are more are even more interested now than ever to learn how to monetize their craft, their career, their celebrity, their knowledge, whatever. And it's exciting to see that. It's exciting to see people being able to survive off of their YouTube channel or their Web3 project has gotten enough funding where they can pay for themselves. I like seeing people have control over their destiny. Okay. I like that. I like that. Putting control back in our hands. What advice would you give a younger Fonz entering the industry today? The same advice I would give anybody else. You need to network. People need to see you grinding. They need to see your face. They need to see you out there. It's only going to take a couple times before they see Oh, that's George. I remember you from the event that was here. And then I saw you at this other event and I saw you at this other event. Hey, tell me more about yourself. What are you into? So keep networking as I've always done and keep your eyes and ears open on trends. You know, if I would have known about crypto when I was younger, I could have got into Bitcoin early. I'm not saying I would have been a billionaire, but maybe I could have put $100 in Bitcoin when it started. Who knows what it would be at now? It would be more than it was then. So making sure that you always keep your ears and eyes open to society. Things are moving fast, but we're in the information age. It's at your fingertips. If you can scroll Instagram for leisure, you can scroll it to learn. If you can be on Twitter for leisure, you can be on it to learn. The same thing with LinkedIn. So I would tell my younger self just Stay ahead of the curve, brother. You mm. can't lose if you stay ahead of the curve. Well said. Well said. And lastly, I'm starting this new ending of my show where I'm calling it Pay It Forward. Now that you've been on the show, who do you think I should have on? And what one question about process should I ask them? I don't have a specific person off the top of my head, but I think you should have a product manager on the show. I think we need to get... because. Being a product manager doesn't always require someone to be creative, right? But there's a lot of other responsibilities that and a lot of other skills that you could have that would make you a great product manager. I think we could convert a lot more people into product management if they understood more what the job was, what the requirements were. So I would say if you can get somebody on a show that can help explain what their journey into product management is like and just how broad, but also how mandatory and necessary product management is, I'm telling you that industry is going to skyrocket forever. It's never going to stop because there's new businesses being formed every day. Somebody has to help manage those products. So I would say that. And as far as process go, 
I would tell you to ask them, how do they manage when things don't work out the way they thought they were going to be? How do they handle conflict? What happens when they set dates and they miss those dates? And there's a disagreement between cross-functional partners and you got to come to some kind of resolution. Like I would want them to talk about triumphing over adversity as opposed to just some of the stuff you see on Twitter or TikTok where it's like, this is my life as a product manager and I do this and I do that. I don't necessarily want the fairy tale explanation. I want more of the, the not too deep, but scratch the surface enough to really inspire some people and educate them on product management and then talk about how it gets tricky. But if you can withstand it, it's a very rewarding career. And that's that's always part of it. It's always part of it to uncover that that thing that, you know, not the shiny, perfect thing that people want to put out there, but the grit right. and the experience and the when it gets tough, what do you do next? You know, those are always mm-hmm. the stories that are going to help me or help anybody figure out really what it is that people do and why I want to be interested in that thing. And I think, you know, like you said, having a product designer would probably be a, a nice break because also they're design adjacentness to, you know, they're, they're creative in their abilities, but not creative in the same way people think of as like visually creative. And I think right. there is such a, a a need for people understanding that that's also creative. <laughs> and we need them. They're my partners. Like another thing I'll say in closing is spend some time talking about how it's a network. It's a web. It's not just product design. It's product design. And then under product design, there's content design and there's interaction design and visual design. But then our partners are product managers, but then our partners are engineering and there's front end and there's back end engineering. And our partners are data scientists, you know, and our partners are UI engineers. Go through all the roles that are, that make up these mega teams that these people look up to and and aspire to join. They're not one person. They're not one role. There's no such thing as just engineering. From the outside, it's just engineering. But when you scratch the surface, like I said, they're front-end engineers. They're back-end engineers. They're front-end engineers that work on React. There's front-end engineers that work on CSS. There's product designers that work on visuals. There's product designers that work on design systems. We got to educate the community and that's through exposure and the exposure comes from you having people like me and yourself and other people that are in the space come on the show and talk about what their career path has been like but then also what their day-to-day is like so people can try to find parts that maybe resonate with them and then they can get a little more clarity or direction on where they would want to go it's exactly what i'm trying to do <laughs> you thank, on your way, George. Thank you for explaining that even better than I could. <laughs> I look forward to seeing you continue to grow the podcast and continue to bring on more people and just keep doing your part in having an impact on the community, man. Thank you. Try it, man. So what's up next for you? Where can listeners find you if they want to look more about what's up with Fonz? You can just hit me up on Twitter. Like I'm always around on Twitter lurking, reading, liking, supporting the community. I'm heavy on LinkedIn. Oh, on Twitter, I'm at Young Fonz. On LinkedIn, I'm Fonz Morris. I'm always on LinkedIn, supporting, posting, inspiring. I'm outside. If you outside, you'll see me. If you're not outside, you won't see me. So that's the best way for me to explain it. If you want to find me, come outside. You'll see me. Right, right. 
you know build your network right you there right. like like i said i should see you in my comments the way you'll see me in your comments i should see you retweeting something that i posted the same way you'll see me reposting your stuff we got to support each other so like i'm on all the platforms and i'm looking to always politic and and holler at people and connect people and stuff like that like i'm in a good spot so i'm trying to help as many people as i can thank you so much and we appreciate the time man this was this was enlightening and you know i appreciate you on the west coast you know kind of like just hollering at me and, and we just you know chatting it up you know two kids from the city so once again Fonz, yep. thank you so much for this man it was a, it was a of ball. Of course, I can hear the, like, is that an ambulance or fire truck in the back? It's, That's it, a classic it's New probably, York. yeah, classic New York. That's the, you don't hear that out here. You do not hear that out here at all. But you hear that in New York. That's the soundtrack of the city. Fire truck, ambulance, cop car, train, bus going by, people yelling. Yeah. Oh, this city. This I know. City. I was I was hoping it wasn't going to be one thing so I could not during the podcast. We wouldn't have it, but you, you caught of it. Of course not. Yeah, of course, of course. But thank you, George. It's good seeing you, man. Thank you for following up to make sure that we can pull this off. It's been a fantastic episode. Yo, man, Fon, thank you so much. Take care. You too, my brother. This has been Works in Process. Once again, I want to thank Fon for taking the time out of his busy day out in Cali to chat. It's so interesting to hear how Netflix is a consumer-first business and the power that research plays in making sure they're able to solve users' problems in ways that make people see value in their service. The Works and Process podcast is created by me, George Gary Stecky Jr., and the content and transcriptions have been reviewed by Or Schifflinger. And this episode has been edited and produced by RJ Basilio. You can find Works and Process on all media platforms such as Apple, Spotify, Google, and more. And if you like the episode, come on, feel free and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you're feeling extra generous, write us a review. It really helps. Also, just subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to right now. It's that easy. And follow us on Instagram or LinkedIn to stay up to date on the new releases of every episode. I appreciate you taking the journey with me, and I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Until next time, remember your work is never final. It's always a works in process. Thank you.